Jonathan Ford, creative partner at Pearl Fisher, speaks to the challenger and iconic brand owners who have used creativity to dare to be different, who have addressed their fears and taken the risks that have enabled them to reap the benefits of success. So today, in the latest of a series of icons and challenger discussions, I am very pleased to have the former marketing director uh, for Green and Blacks, who in fact is now the non-executive director for Green and Blacks, Mark Palmer. Um, Mark is known to be passionate, driven and controlled, and in his time he's worked at United Biscuits and then Burger King before becoming the marketing director for Green and Blacks in 2001. Mark obviously had a big uh, catalytic effect at Green and Blacks because during his, uh, his tenure, turnover moved from 4 million to 50 million. And uh, in that time, Green and Blacks moved from being a UK brand to also being available in the US, Canada and Australia. It's been such a success that Mark has been voted Marketer of the Year and also Green and Blacks um, won the prestigious Grand Prix Award for Marketing Excellence. And it's been widely acknowledged as one of the most entrepreneurial business success stories in recent years. So Green and Blacks is really um, quintessentially a challenger brand that has done very well. It's got a very cool factor. And in fact, that's been measured by super brands who have voted it for four years running into the uh, coolest food brand sector of super brands. Alongside his ongoing involvement with, with Green and Blacks, Mark is clearly a busy man because he runs his own marketing consultancy business. And not only that, but he's also a partner of Namadi Advisors, which is a boutique private equity firm providing hands-on management input and funds for fast-growth small businesses. One of these is Corston Press Juices, which is also following in a similar vein to Green and Blacks. Well, Mark's obviously got a bit of the Midas touch and a taste for the entrepreneurial life, uh, which is not for the faint-hearted. So, Mark, welcome to this discussion. Thank you, Jonathan. So, uh, I'm interested in, in uh, you know, the, the contrast in terms of where you were before and uh, you joined Green and Blacks and then the kind of the, the, the transition into Green and Blacks because you were, uh, for some time, at United Biscuits and then uh, a global icon in the fast food world, Burger King. It couldn't have been more of a contrasting move. Uh, Green and Blacks had been in the market for um, seven or eight years. Um, but it was facing various challenges and therefore was a lot more riskier and uh, less comfortable than, than the established brand that you're working for. What was it that attracted you to Green and Blacks? Well, I guess having followed a fairly classical path and training and, and doing my time in bigger corporates environments, um, there was a sense of a little bit of personal frustration in those big companies that you're working on some, some very large and, and some fantastic brands. Um, you can certainly impact their fortunes, but the brands have often already been created and you're there to, to I guess, fine tune them and improve them where possible. But it's not quite as exciting as the, the thrill of working on something that's, that's more embryonic, where you can genuinely have access to all areas in the business and grow a, grow a business rather than just a brand. And I guess rather than being a middle to senior marketeer in a big corporate, I, I was attracted to being sort of at the top table of a smaller business where the numbers were much smaller, um, but the chance to really impact the fortunes of the company, um, it was far more material. And in fact, equally, if, if things had gone wrong, um, it was far more material as well because um, there's less places to hide in a, in a smaller business. And in that sense, there's uh, far more risk attached. 
Yeah. And it, it, it had many dimensions to the brand as well, um, as offering you the, um, the personal challenges uh, that you've been talking about and the ability to make an impact. That, you know, it, was a, it was a brand that had been uh, championing fair trade and organic. And, uh, and having established itself probably six or seven years before you joined uh, Green and Blacks, it did seem to be tapping into this uh, big shift, which was the idea that organic wasn't something that uh, was any more in the domain of the niche, that it has a much more wider um, appeal. What was driving that kind of growth at the time that clearly was uh, providing you with a sense of both personal opportunity but business opportunity? Well, I guess at the time, I remember receiving the call asking whether I'd be interested in, in interviewing for the, for the role at Green and Blacks. And, I was at Burger King at the time, so at the opposite end of the food business. And I guess when I initially took the call, I had not actually heard of Green and Blacks, um, which was disappointing for the, the headhunter at the time. But it certainly set me on a mission to go out and discover the brand and learn something more about it. And I was struck really by the, the story behind the brand. And within Green and Blacks makeup, and it's still the case today, there's always been a a strong strand of, of, of challenge, whether that was being the world's first organic chocolates, the ethical trading practices with, with fair trade, and Green and Blacks was the first product to ever carry the fair trade symbol back in back in '94. And I think um, what I look for as a marketeer is, is a brand that has a, a stance and, and a point of view, and ideally one that can be told as a story. Because if you're if you are a smaller brand or business with, with limited, you know, finite financial resources, you can't automatically look and say, let's create an advertising campaign to, to market our brand. Uh, you have to get as much free coverage as you possibly can. So you behave like an owner manager of a business and, and the better the story and the more raw material you have to work with, the greater chance you have of, of putting the brand on the map. And I'd already, I guess from a distance as I, discovered the Green and Blacks brand, I could see the many strands that were, as a marketeer, really attractive um, facets that the brand had uh, that were little, at that stage, were not particularly well known. There was a core following that the, the brand had um, of early adopters, and they'd fallen in love with the brand. And when you see that level of connection with consumers, it doesn't really matter whether there are hundreds of them or thousands of them. There are very few businesses and brands that connect in that way. And, and Green and Blacks was already connecting in a niche way, some might argue, and I saw my job as exploding the story and taking it onto the next stage. But I was I was very fortunate to arrive at a business and, and work on a brand where the authenticity w was already there. And I think often we see brands that have little authenticity trying to create it. Mm. Here was a brand that had minimal awareness, but absolute sort of um, uh, stashes of authenticity just ready to be to be unlocked. Yeah, and I think from a from a, a um, you know when you look at a, you know a lot of challenger brands which are poised for growth, they do have this real sense of specialness about them, which uh, which draws people into them. And as you say, you know at that time it it had been in the market for a few years and it had a fairly loyal kind of um, following. Um, so the opportunity to explode that was was really the kind of the uh, the key thing. What was the what were the first if you, if you like, tasks that you set about doing when you, when you arrived to un, unpack all, all of that opportunity? Well, I think the, the best thing you can do when you arrive in any new environment, certainly in a, in a marketeer's capacity, is to um, spend the first couple of weeks just sitting and listening to everybody around you to work out what it is about the brand that they think is 
is working well and also to hear some of the things they think are, are an issue or a problem for the brand. So I spent my early weeks with the business really talking to first and foremost the founders of the business who'd had this tremendous original idea, their passion for, for the brand and where that was coming from. If you look at most entrepreneurial challenger brands, there is usually somebody behind them who is on a bit of a mission and that's the reason that they've created the business to start with or they've created a brand to solve a problem that they've encountered in their lives and in the case of Green and Blacks it was this tension between Joe Fairley and, and Craig Sams who are the husband and wife team who, who created the brand and Joe is a self-confessed chocoholic but also loves all things design and luxurious in terms of her, her personal interests uh, and Craig is uh, an eco-warrior really, a real ethical champion and they um, tried to really solve the riddle around why can't you have indulgent, amazing tasting chocolate, but also be responsible in the way you, you create it. And that was the positioning of the brand. I think what I discovered early on talking to customers, and they were stockists of the brand and equally end consumers of the brand, is that um, that message was slightly misguided. So people were interpreting Green and Blacks as very much a save the planet chocolate, was sort of the feedback I would have, or even number one lady describing Green and Blacks as, as charity chocolate. So it was well-meaning, but not worth her chocolate credits. So very ethical, but the fact it was ethical led to suspicion around, would it taste any good? And that's what I had to solve. So I realized that we actually had a fabulous tasting product, but perhaps a brand presentation that was leaning a little bit too much towards the, the green ethical side. Whereas to be honest, when people are eating chocolate, it's, it's quite a selfish thing. And it's about me, me, me. And you have to look and talk the language of a category which is desirable and indulgent. So you had um, really sort of two forces that were kind of pretty well entrenched. You got a, um, a, a very loyal, um, worthy, organic kind of niche consumer base. And you've also got um, uh, a kind of two very um, passionate founders who are kind of uh, very into the, both, the, as you say, the ethics and the, the personal ownership of the brand, yes. which can be um, a positive force, but it can also be a restrictive force, especially as you're, you were coming in at a time when there was investment to kind of release the potential. So what do you think was harder? Was it, was it kind of um, forcing reappraisal of Worthy Organic into this everyday luxury premium positioning that it took for the, for the consumers? Or was it for, the, for Craig and Joe? Well, I think for Craig and Joe as the founders, um, whenever anybody new comes in and grabs control of your, of your baby, so to speak, that's always quite a, a terrifying experience. So I was careful to spend a good amount of time really understanding from them what made them tick and, in their opinion, what made the brand tick. And I felt there was a real alignment between what, what I wanted to do with the brand um, because the positioning that I envisaged was actually the same as the positioning that they envisaged. I just felt that we were not quite landing that positioning and we were in need of just slightly um, refocusing our efforts more towards behaving like a chocolate brand rather than a, a cause-related brand, which was how consumers were, some consumers were perceiving green and blacks at the time. So I think bringing the founders along for the next chapter was, was not too challenging. Um, because for them, they, they, they viewed it hopefully as some useful help had arrived to help them put their original idea on the map rather than somebody wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I worked closely with them. The, the consumers, in terms of the end buyers and people that, that enjoyed the chocolate, tent, came along pretty, pretty easily as well. Um, the biggest challenge was persuading the, um, the trade uh, customers who sat in the middle of the brand and, and the end consumers 
to understand what on earth Green and Blacks was and where it fitted in their world. So in the early years, Green and Blacks had been pigeonholed because it was organic and fair trade. It was displayed in supermarkets um, in a dedicated section of organic food. So it would be next to organic pasta sauces or organic brown rice, that kind of almost health food sector. And whilst that was very true to the organic roots of the brand, people were not really in that mode when they were buying chocolate. So the main task we had to do, and it was a marketing and a general commercial sales task, was to move the brand from those parts of the store to being a respected player within the chocolate section of the store. And that meant we we were changing and redefining our entire um, set of competitors in doing so. So we, we moved from being actually quite a, I would like to think, slick and well-managed business within the healthy foods arena, uh, being one of the almost the leading brands there, to being a complete nobody in the chocolate section. We were the sort of upstart in the category with this slightly weird positioning around organic and ethical. And we were up against um, some big global players at that point. So it was a big task to persuade the trade that organic was a sufficient reason to um, give the brand its chance in, in the big time of the chocolate section. And that took a little longer than getting the founders and indeed the end lovers of the brand, the consumers, to to sort of move with the programme. And um, the, the key to forcing this reappraisal um, within the trade was uh, a repositioning, um, uh, moving organic, not to the you know, to the bottom of the pile, but re-evaluating what the brand stood on in terms of a taste intensity um, underpinned by organic, and then um, representing Green and Blacks through a, a redesign, which kind of elevated its uh, everyday premium uh, qualities and this, this taste intensity. The biggest, um, I mean, the biggest turning point for the brand was, um, I've gone on record saying this many times, that we, we had outstanding tasting chocolate that was well-respected and written about by many people who are experts in that field. Uh, we had impeccable authenticity and stories around organic and ethical cocoa sourcing, um, but we had an image problem. And our presentation at the time put organic and ethical, whilst we were very proud of those things and still are today, almost as the, the main reason that someone should buy the chocolate. And what we found is that there, were, there was an audience for that, but for most chocolate buyers, it was a turn off rather than a turn on at that time, mainly because they didn't understand how those attributes could coexist alongside taste and indulgence. So we changed the look of the brand, uh, working with Pearl Fisher, and that, that identity change definitely uh, was the biggest single thing we did to change perceptions of the brand. And the reason it was important is it allowed our coll my colleagues in the business, for example, the sales team, to walk into customers with a pack in their hand and at a glance people understood what we were trying to achieve. Previously, um, whilst the brand looked very smart and if you took the time to read the pack carefully you would understand the positioning, people don't really have the time to do that. Whereas, So we moved from a very longhand description of the brand to an at a glance positioning on the pack and the difference that we had in terms of reception from our trade customers was, was quite remarkable. We were all of a sudden viewed as a chocolate brand with really differentiating characteristics like organic rather than an organic ethical company trying to sell a bit of chocolate. Um, so the identity change uh, we did uh, back in 2002, those packs first rolled out. So we're now nearly 10 years on and that design's still the bedrock of what we do today. Um, we did packaging design, 
We got people to taste our chocolate through sampling, and we got as many people as possible to write nice things about us through PR. That was our marketing effort, alongside relocating the chocolate into the chocolate sections. That was long before we had the budgets to even consider um, traditional techniques such as advertising, which are now part of the regular mix that, that we use. So um, it was a, uh, a very powerful, uh, I think, consolidation of all the positive elements of the brand coming together uh, and product um, through a brand identity and, uh, and therefore giving you the opportunity to expand the line, um, take um, a more cohesive message into communications. Can you just give us a, a quick summary of the immediate effect that the brand had um, in, those couple, in those few years after that uh, repositioning? Yes. Um, I mean, I think we, in terms of the availability of the brand, that was the first thing that we as, as business owners would, would manage. So how many stores the brand was, was sold in. Green and Blacks um, had been around since 1991. Uh, typically, it was available in, um, in health foods or very fine food stores where it would be stocked because of its green credentials or because of its high cocoa gourmet chocolate appeal. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, in supermarkets were available, but only available in the speciality health food sectors. So off the back of the design, we moved to the chocolate fixtures and started to um, expand our distribution. So within a year of the redesign, we would have uh, on the, the main pack, we do the large chocolate bars, uh, an average of six lines stocked in the likes of Sainsbury's and Tesco uh, and Waitrose. Some of those customers had dabbled with Green and Blacks before, but this really was a, a step change in terms of our presence and the presence that we had in, in, the, in the right part of the store, in the chocolate section. So it immediately became a success story and uh, is uh, you know, being, being quoted in, in a press many times as being one of the quintessential um, entrepreneurial success stories over the years. And so much so that obviously you managed to build value um, in the brand that became attractive to, uh, to potential uh, suitors. And one of the things that we observe at Pearl Fisher is how uh, challenger brands that you know multiply their desire and as they increase their market share is, is they have an opportunity to reach a much bigger audience through the kind of investment they get and the, the activity they do in, uh, and the way they present themselves and uh, they can be on a journey towards potentially becoming if they're you know stick to their path uh, truly iconic as part of this kind of um, this process of, of growth and expansion there's always a kind of a, a challenge which is um, laid out for brands like these as they move from niche to, to mass. And one of the, the key moments that, uh, that came along um, in the mid uh, uh, 2000s was the uh, acquisition by Cadbury. And, um, and then following on from that, you know, Cadbury's acquisition by, by Kraft. What were the key challenges that were kind of being faced at that point as you were clearly a success? Um, for the brand in terms of maybe undermining what made it special in the first place and retaining that in a much bigger corporate context? I think there's always a suspicion when big corporates buy into these emerging challenger brands that everything will change about the brands. But you have to remember the reason they've acquired them in the first place is that they're, they're interesting and probably bring something to their wider portfolio that those uh, companies don't already have. And I know that um, you know, if you talk to the people that were involved in acquiring the business on behalf of, of Cadbury, they identified um, the fact that Green and Blacks had great premium credentials and was anchored in higher cocoa chocolate. And our early mover participation in, in the likes of organic and, and fair traders 
There's things that were um, were not already existing in their portfolio. So they, they were very keen to take Green and Blacks on, um, allow it to still incubate to an extent. So the business has been run as a, as a separate business unit ever since. It hasn't been folded into the to the overall um, the mothership, so to speak. So it's been given room to breathe. Um, clearly, there's a desire when somebody buys something to to do something with it and to take it on to the to the next stage. And and for Cadbury, the the desire was to continue the momentum in the UK, which has happened, but also to allow the brand to spread its wings internationally. And under the private ownership phase that Green and Blacks had, we did, um, I guess, dip our toe in the water in terms of international expansion with some encouraging signs. But we probably didn't have the resources or perhaps even the appetite for risk to, um, to I guess, put on the line all the hard work we'd done in our home market with some big gambles internationally. And under the stewardship of a bigger company that already has those um, levels of infrastructures in place, it, it was a far easier path for Green and Blacks to, to move internationally. And if you look at uh, in the US now, Green and Blacks is not, um, is not available everywhere in the US. It's not, it's not treated as a mass proposition. It's available in gourmet grocery stores and it's available in um, natural food stores. So Whole Foods Market um, are the biggest sort of player in that in the natural food sector. Green and Black's the biggest selling chocolate bar brand in their in their stores, and that's certainly been easier to accomplish as part of a of an international business rather than just a privately owned UK one. Um, and also, you have to come back to you know why do people buy brands like this? They they like the attitude of the brand, but they also like the product and the way that it's presented, and there's been a, a huge amount of effort along the way to make sure that those um, those attributes are not compromised. Mm-hmm. And so whilst people do talk about wanting to buy brands because they're owned by little companies, I'm quite a big believer that, that that may attract people in the first place, but they generally, in chocolate, will vote with their taste buds. So if they enjoy the bar, they, they, will, they will come back and buy it again. And I think whoever the owner is of a brand, um, you have to protect the things that are in the DNA of the brand and organic is one for green and blacks. Indulgent higher cocoa chocolate is one. Um, being owned by private individuals probably is not. So that's interesting. I mean, there's several themes that are going uh, going on in that. On the one hand, we had um, uh, Cadbury um, recognizing the kind of the potential to uh, fold you into the kind of the Cadbury portfolio and bring premium values. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that that could um, potentially squash the specialness of the brand. So by keeping you separate, um, both culturally and physically, um, it allowed you to flourish, but also gave you the platform to uh, to grow. So I would have thought that was well, as you've already said, that's a that's a that's a, a key thing. But um, and I, I we've noticed it also with uh, with other brands where there has been um, you know perhaps talk about. Uh, an independent challenger entrepreneur brand that has done well in a small market. Um, the moment that you start hearing about, you know, a bigger corporate takeover, the kind of the press can go, uh, the press can go against uh, that that notion because there is a there is a fear that you know, the brand that is dear to me um, is no longer going to be the same. And the worst case scenario is that, is that people can leave you. But in in um, in both instances, it seems like the product quality. Um, has been protected um, as the key to the, uh, the the continued success in the market. Well, I think 
I think the press are right to be suspicious. I mean, if you, if you, if you were to analyze the track record that big corporates have got in, in taking on board these challenger emerging brands, um, it tends not to be a brilliant track record. Um, brands often do, after a period of time, do not tend to flourish in that environment. But that usually happens when I think the, the strong-willed point of view of the, of the managers of that challenger brand is, um, is lost and when things are completely folded into the bigger organization. And I think it's about focus. I mean, as a team running Green and Blacks, we would be hugely excited about what our 16th flavor of um, and variety of chocolate bar might be, because for us, that would be incredibly important. And it's important to, to still retain that total focus on the business. Um, whereas if you are looking at that through a different lens, so if you're in charge of a big multinational and you're looking at your um, European chocolate division then of which a brand like Green and Blacks may be a part then for you the total Green and Blacks business is probably quite small and whether you're particularly motivated by the 16th flavour of, of, of the brand is is questionable so it's about trying to create a, a role for an entrepreneurial brand within a bigger portfolio that provides that protection and I think the minute things are folded into um, into the into the wider organization it's quite hard to preserve those and uh, certainly Cabri, Cabri in the early in the early days of their ownership made it you know a very very active effort to to give green and blacks the the air cover and the um, the protection including their CEO Todd Stitz is sitting on our board um, to shout at people occasionally if they if they interfere <laughs> too much, um, to give the brand the room to breathe because because mm. without that that's where the problems occur. Their problem is not, in my opinion, not about the brand but about how a brand is managed mm. uh, within the corporate world. Mm. And um, if we think of you know green and blacks in, on scale size as a bit of the you know, David to the Goliath of some of these much bigger sort of um, sure. confectionery brands and you know let's say for example Cadbury, a Cadbury Dairy Milk. Um, were you able to see a tangibly uh, a, a positive difference in the way that uh, Green and Black had affected those bigger brands? Well, I think um, we, would like to, we would like to think so. And obviously, as, as someone that's uh, grown up with Green and Blacks, I, I, I would say that. But interesting that you know, within a couple of years of Green and Blacks joining the, the Cadbury stable, um, Cadbury Dairy Milk itself went fair trade. I'm not saying that was entirely linked to Green and Blacks being fair trade, but perhaps some of the behaviour of of these smaller emerging brands can ultimately rub off onto the, the bigger parts of the organization. I think that Cadbury were um, impressed by the speed that which we could, that Green and Blacks operated in, the speed that we could bring new products to market, and also were quite motivated by our um, aptitude to take on a bit of risk and our desire to have intuition as a key part of our decision making. I think sometimes in bigger corporate environments, um, people judgment and touch and feel is almost knocked out of the process. Whereas for a smaller challenger brand, it's right at the heart of the process, almost to the point where you um, almost disregard external input and sometimes research. Um, you don't tend to ask the audience, you tend to back your judgment and you tend to try things out in a small way, learn on the job, so to speak. You don't. Um, you're not afraid to give things a go. You try to do it in such a way that you don't put the entire company's finances at risk if you make a mistake. But you definitely are incentivized to try things in a small way, learn from them, and then scale them up 
And I think that's a behavior that sometimes big companies find quite difficult. They like to have overnight success on a big scale, which means de-risking things from day one. And in doing so, you may well sort of take eliminate the risk of total failure, but you may well knock the edges off a good idea yeah. as well. There's an interesting irony there that uh, you know corporations around the world will spend you know hundreds of thousands, maybe millions on um, you know, innovation and have uh, innovation teams, and yet as you've already pointed out, the corporate structure that provides this this you know the opportunity for innovation is actually goes against the ability to actually be innovative and uh, and so it becomes a sort of an ineffective use of funds but to do it in the way that you are um, the way you've described and to have the freedom does allow um, ideas to breathe from what I can tell um, can you tell me if there are things that green and blacks have done that actually have that, that were risks that actually have then failed in the market absolutely um, I mean some of our new product development um, ideas have, have not worked we've had forays into um, a few new new products or flavors that um, that haven't sort of um, been as successful as some of our other initiatives but what we tend to do is we feed things in quite gently so we will we will always budget enough um, people time and hopefully resource to develop a, a recipe or to develop the packaging to launch that product um, that and that really encourages people to give things a go uh, but what we won't do is um, allocate significant marketing support um, behind a new product or initiative until we're sure that it's going to work. And my, for what it's worth, experience of working in corporates and then in smaller businesses, you can sit through uh, a huge number of focus groups and talk yourself into the idea that something is going to work at the end of it, almost for internal justification reasons. And there's nothing better than actually testing something in the real market. Uh, that's the true conditions. And I think... The only way you can do that, though, is to be prepared to launch something and accept that its sales in the very early days will be will be very, very small. Um, but you put it into the market, learn from it. Um, if it's not working, you can almost um, gracefully withdraw without too much embarrassment, stroke, money lost. Uh, and if you've identified a potential winner, you can invest more confidently and be sure that it's going to succeed. And that's where sitting as, a, as an owner-manager um, I want marketeers to come to me with things that they've already done um, proper testing on, and that they can look me in the eye and say, "Please write me a check to spend a marketing, spend some proper marketing money now making this thing more famous." And I'm personally not always entirely convinced by um, traditional research in that sense. Mm. Um, I'd far rather see how many units we've sold in a particular store. So, we're, well, we're moving on to the uh, penultimate question, really, and we're now talking about. Um, you know successes and failures in the market and, and you are in your capacity as a non-exec now of uh, green and blacks but also as a um, as a consultant in your own right um, you know you do get involved with startups and, and other developing brands what are the selection uh, watch outs that you've got for success or failure when you evaluate companies to get involved in um, I don't always get that judgment Right, um, but I would say, gradually learning by the years, what are the really important things? Uh, and I suppose I would start by saying, I, I think the product is the most important thing. So I think when we all see something new, we can, we can be quite excited by it uh, because it's new. Um, but I have a personal test now, certainly within the food and drink industry, that um, 
I like to, if I'm judging a product, have you know a plentiful supply of it, um, distribute it amongst family and friends, and just see how long it takes them to actually consume the full amount. And usually, the first sample everybody is given is is gobbled down straight away. Uh, the real test is whether they go back and um, and eat the rest of the samples that are in the cupboard. And uh, that sounds a very unscientific form of research, but. It's remarkable how slow some products are, even if they're available on tap for free. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a real test. Food and drink, we can all be persuaded to try something once, but generally we don't buy it again unless we've enjoyed it. So product quality is first and foremost. I certainly wouldn't uh, decide whether to get involved in a brand or not based on whether it had fantastic packaging. I'd almost be more excited if it had pretty poor packaging. So I think that's an area of real improvement that can be quickly added. Um, so don't be dazzled by fancy packaging on a, on a Duff product. Um, check the product is good and then the packaging can be, can be made to be better if necessary. And from a business point of view, I think the most important thing is you, you have to look long and hard at the people that are day-to-day -day running the business and say, is this team capable of um, making a success of this? And within that team, you want to have definite determination and passion but you need a bit you need a mix of skills and you need people to not all look like exactly the same characters so first and foremost it's reassuring if there is someone in the business that's a little bit skeptical and thinks it's exciting to look at spreadsheets and i say that as a marketeer but i've yet to come across a good food or drink company that doesn't have a good accountant behind it somewhere in the mix and it's not an external accountant it's somebody in the building um keeping a close watch on on finances and that I say that not because you need somebody to stop you spending money but you you need good controls you need to know what's going on in real time so someone that can present you good financial information but more importantly if you are starting to do well you need a finance director that will get you more more people and more money to go faster and that's what the best ones do they don't penny pinch around how much stationery you're ordering they work out how the business can be financed properly and how more talent can be brought into the business. So good finance skills are critical. Great product is critical. And I guess you have to ask the obvious question around, you know, does, does the world need this product? Um, what is it? What problem is it solving? Would anybody cry or be disappointed if it disappeared overnight? And uh, they're, all, they're all good tests, but people's right at the top of the tree. So... Um... That's fab fabulous. I mean, if you are looking kind of uh, at the your people that uh, are around there bringing their new brands to market at the moment and uh, have got aspirations and ambitions, if there's a single piece of advice you could give them around perhaps creativity or behavior um, from an entrepreneurial point of view um, to help them succeed, what would that be? I think the first single biggest piece of advice would be to get your product right before you spend any money on marketing. So almost as difficult as it is for marketers, uh, ban yourself from working with any agencies until you can look yourself in the mirror and be sure that the product you're selling is, is as good as it can be and also that you understand if you were if you were down the pub with your friends and they asked you to introduce it to them that you've got the story right for the brand. Uh, then go to um, some brilliant creative people and ask them to turn your boring story into something exciting. But do it in that order. And I think as marketers, we, we can be incredibly busy spending money before we've worked out whether we've got anything worth spending it behind. So I think that's a, a useful lesson.
operate, you know, behave as an owner manager and, and don't spend anything on marketing until you've uh, until you've got your proposition as good as it can be. Fantastic. That's great. Well, we know you're involved in uh, in many other uh, brands which have got a great product at the heart of it. We wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you.